Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the fourth episode in a six-part miniseries called The Physics of Everything, in which we're presenting long-form conversations from a series of events at the Academy sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. Explorations that reflect on the current state of modern physical sciences, its greatest mysteries and future endeavors, and philosophical significance for our understanding of reality and the spiritual dimension of human existence. And today's discussion is about one of the fundamental questions of philosophy, which is to say, one of the most primal questions human beings have ever asked themselves. In the early 17th century, René Descartes, who many regard as the father of modern Western philosophy, sat down with a kind of crazy problem. We think we're alive and awake and aware, but how do we know it for sure? How do we know we're not some kind of holographic projection or a character in someone else's dream? To prove philosophically that he actually had an identity, he came up with a very famous and very simple axiom, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. If I didn't have my own consciousness, I wouldn't be able to ask questions like that. And so consciousness, which is some combination of our mental acuity, the ability to observe and think and ask questions, and our self-awareness, I am here looking at this problem, asking this question, I think, therefore I am, is maybe not just an aspect of our personhood, maybe it's the core of it. But what exactly does it mean to think? What does it mean to be conscious? We use the concept of consciousness and the assumption that humans are somehow more conscious than animals, which are in turn more conscious than plants and rocks and machines, to make all kinds of ethical decisions. But what actual knowledge are we basing these decisions on? What exactly separates a conscious being from one that isn't? These are questions that philosophers have grappled with for as long as there's been philosophy. And now that neurologists are starting to be able to study the electric and chemical mechanisms of neurons, the physical stuff of which thoughts are made, they're questions that science is having to come to grips with as well. So let's talk about it. What is consciousness? Are animals conscious in the same way that we are? Can we build a machine that is truly conscious? And is self-awareness really an advantage in the evolutionary scheme of things? Our moderator for this thorny and fascinating discussion held at the Academy on May 23rd, 2016, was George Musser, contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and author of the books Spooky Action at a Distance and The Complete Idiot's Guide to String Theory. I'll let him introduce the rest of the panel. Well, thanks to everyone for coming out tonight. I think we'll have a lot of fun with this topic and with this exalted group of panelists. So how do we understand our brain's generation of subjective experience? Will robots one day share that, that faculty with us? Can we sit on a beach with the robot one day and marvel at the sunset and know that the robot is also truly marveling and not just saying that it is? So these are some... <laughs> deep mysteries in, in science and engineering. In fact, it really transcends the usual academic pigeonholes that we all find ourselves put in. So often the scientists will say, well, that's just philosophy. Or the philosophers say, well, that's just engineering. 
This is a just free zone tonight. We're going to be delving into physics, engineering, philosophy that goes back, of course, thousands of years on, the, on this topic, cognitive science, pretty much all the sciences and, and, and technical fields put together in one big pot. And we're going to move among them without any kind of further apology for doing so. I am honored and more really just humbled at being able to introduce these gentlemen I share the stage with today. I mean, what a, what a group we have. I'll introduce them one by one. And each will provide their Twitter version or their elevator pitch version of what consciousness is in an effort to kind of set some kind of common terms for our discussion tonight. So David Chalmers is a philosopher at NYU, one of the leading philosophers in the world on the mind, on language, and perhaps best known for many things, but perhaps best known for making the distinction between the easy, quote, easy problems of consciousness and the hard problem. And actually, the easy problems are pretty hard themselves in understanding how our cognitive faculties operate. But the hard problem is the truly hard one, which we'll get into in the course of our discussion. So consciousness, what is your elevator pitch of what consciousness I'd is? I think consciousness is the subjective experience of the mind and of the world from the first person perspective. So it's what it feels like, what it's like from the first person perspective to perceive, to think, and to feel. So when I look out at this audience, I some, you know, a lot of visions going on, but there's a subjective experience of color, um, sizes and shapes. Red feels like something to me. Blue feels like something to me. When I feel pain, it's not just, uh, sure, there's a stimulus and a response, but there's a subjective experience. And when I think, there's a particular subjective quality to thinking. So consciousness, to me at least, subsumes all of those phenomena that feel like something from the first person point of view. Great. And that's what we'll try to get into tonight. Michael Graziano is a neuroscientist and really a polymath. He does a number of things down at, at Princeton. Um, you have a computer keyboard next to your music keyboard in your office, I noticed. Um, even within neuroscience, he ranges quite broadly from theory, understanding what consciousness is at a deep level, to observations, and even thinking about artificial intelligence, artificial consciousness. So Mike, consciousness. What is consciousness? Wow. Well. I, uh, as a neuroscientist, I would say the, 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 the brain is a machine. <laughs> and like any really complicated machine, it needs self-description, self-models, so it can monitor itself and control itself. And those self-models are kind of cartoonish. They're not very accurate. And so the machine m mistakenly thinks it has magic inside of it. <laughs> and consciousness is all the magical, physically incoherent stuff that this machine attributes to itself in building models of itself. Next up we have, <laughs> it's amazing actually the kind of definitions that you get and how broad they, they can be. So Max Tegmark has just arrived from Boston by train. He comes to us from MIT where he's a cosmologist. Actually I first met him I guess at a conference on dark energy back God knows how many years ago he studied microwave background. And you may begin to wonder, why is Max on this particular panel? Well, I think you can say that he's as much a neurophysicist nowadays as an astrophysicist. And you also, what is it? The Future of Life Institute is something that you helped to co-found to address questions of existential risk. Are we putting humanity at risk by building artificial intelligence and, and other kinds of, of issues? So Max, help me. Consciousness from your your eclectic point of view. 
this is really a double question. First, my definition of consciousness, which is exactly the same as David Chalmers' subjective experience. And then the question of also what I think it actually is. I would say, my guess is that consciousness is the way information feels when it's being processed in certain very complex ways. And uh, to me, the great mystery is what precisely are these complex ways? What is it that's required? You mentioned the self-description, for example. But the, the operating system on my iPhone also has a pretty good self-monitoring and self-description system. It's, but I don't know if it feels like anything subjectively to be my iPhone. And I would love to know, what is this missing principle that information processing has to satisfy in order to have this amazing subjective experience that we all know? And indeed, that segues nicely to our, our, our final panelist. Ty Lipson is a roboticist up at Columbia. And I actually looked at the first time I ever wrote about your work was in the year 2000 in Scientific American. And I need to quote myself. You'll have to indulge me. When a future robotic race writes its book of Genesis, it will give a place of honor to Hod Lipson. <laughs> and that perhaps hyperbolic statement was on the account of some of the work he did on self-replication. He had built a robot that can build a copy of itself, which was pretty, pretty awesome. But you've also been a pioneer. He's also been a pioneer of 3D printing, machine learning, deep learning. And he's even brought one of his uh, creatures with him today. And he'll talk about that later uh, and show a video of it later as well. Um, and unfortunately, it can't respond to your queries or anything like that. Hod, from or your point it. of view, sorry? Or can it? Uh-oh. <laughs> Consciousness. It's a, uh, the ability to self-simulate. Uh, this is sort of the, the practical definition that we use in robotics. Uh, and we want to move away from sort of words that uh, are subjective into something that we can actually build. And so the ability to self-simulate. That's less than 140 characters. I know, right? He, he wins the, the Twitter contest on this, on this one. So the way I'll structure the discussion tonight is I've broken it down into four segments. And I've given us a little bit of swing on that, so we need to cut it back to three to fit the time we can do that, and we can get into some of the other issues, either here or in the, in the uh, where you're eating crudités and, and drinking wine. Uh, and the issues we'll get into will be dualism. And I'm going to define these in a second. I just want to get them out so you know where I'm going. The role of information, which has come up in a couple of these definitions. The role of experiment. Is this a topic that can be addressed empirically? Because otherwise, is it science? And then the promise and perhaps the threat, if indeed there is, of artificial consciousness. And those kinds of questions all blend and bleed into one another, so there's no sharp divisions. And I'm sure the discussion will also kind of blur those distinctions. And our goal tonight is really not to answer, because if we could, we would be going on, on to Stockholm here. Uh, but our, our goal is really to just provoke you and, and get some, some ideas going here. So let me start with matter versus mind, and whether those are indeed separate categories. Now, I don't think we need to rehearse the history of philosophy on this. We can take it as a given from our modern perspective that there is a physical substrate of consciousness. But in some of the theories of consciousness, there seems to be almost like a crypto dualism that, or maybe a full-fledged dualism that kind of gets, gets back in there, that makes a, a distinction between the actual atoms and quarks and so forth and the conscious states. So I'm wondering whether, and this will be the question I posed to, first to David, whether our subjective states require maybe a new theoretical framework or a new set of, of tools to access empirically. So what do I make of these old dualistic ideas in the context of, of modern science and philosophy? 
Well, these ideas do go back a long way in the history of philosophy to, uh, for, for example, Rene Descartes, who, sep who posed a sharp separation between matter and mind. He thought there's a, two substances, a physical substance embodied in our brains and our bodies and a mental substance, basically our consciousness that thinks. It was a kind of a non-physical ego, a soul, if you like, restricted to humans, not present in non-human animals. Now, I think these days the scientific and philosophical consensus is that, number one, that there is no non-physical soul or ego, at least no evidence for that. And number two, that consciousness is not restricted to human beings, it extends to, to non-human animals. Incidentally, I, I should say that despite the, uh, the makeup of this panel, I think there's also a scientific and philosophical consensus that consciousness is not restricted to white men. Uh, <laughs> um, there's pretty, pretty widespread agreement that women are conscious and m members of other races are, uh, are conscious. And, uh, and furthermore, uh, you know, consciousness may extend quite, uh, quite deep throughout the, uh, the natural order. That said, that's not yet, it's not the case that consciousness has been fully explained in terms of physics or in terms of the brain. And there remain some very large mysteries when it comes to explaining things like the behavioral aspects of the mind, what, even things like what Hod was calling the ability to self-simulate and so on. Pretty straightforward to see how you might in principle have some kind of physical or computational uh, explanations of those behaviors and abilities. But when it comes to the experiential aspects, how it feels from the inside, at the moment we're in the situation of there being a kind of a gap between our best physical theories of the brain and the body and so on and of the experience. Why is it? We can see why all, these, all this processing in a brain would give you a system that could respond and walk and talk, but why all that should feel like something from the inside is still a pretty big mystery. And I think you know, there's nothing like a consensus theory coming out of, or even a consensus guess coming out of, of um, neuroscience or psychology or physics about how to explain this. So this is the explanatory gap that really structures a lot of work in this field. So Mike, you've also spoken of the gap. You've actually called it, I think, the metaphysical gap here, which is sure. a provocative way of, of putting it. Do all the theories that we have of consciousness have the, and then there was a miracle aspect to them? M m many of them do, but not all of them do. And, you know, I, the kind of approach that I take, and there's a few other people who take this approach, is that essentially the, the, the notion of the metaphysical gap is um, mistaken. There is no metaphysical gap, and that the the phenomenon to explain is why it is that brains, well, we know human brains at least, insist that they have this property, right? So the brain as machine insists it has a property which is non-physical and kind of magical. And when a machine insists that it has that property, you can ask, why did it compute that information? How come it doesn't know it's computed information? what circuits are involved in computing it, and what kind of adaptive value is there to computing that peculiar kind of self-model. So those are the kinds of approaches we have been taking from a neuroscience point of view, uh, in which there, there kind of is no explanatory gap. Uh, and uh, you know, our, our, our question is not, how do you get the inner feeling, but how do you get brains that insist they have an inner feeling? <laughs> right. Max, I mean, one, one way you put it is a consciousness is a state of matter. Um, does that mean it's sort of like ice and versus steam, or what does that actually mean? Yeah, my physics perspective is, on this is kind of radical, just because I'm a physicist. From my perspective as a physicist, there's certainly no 
gap between two kinds of things. Because I feel the whole, if there's anything we should learn from the history of physics, it, it's that we have again and again managed to unify things that we thought had nothing to do with each other. We thought electricity and magnetism were two separate things. And I've spent the spring semester teaching a course called Electromagnetism, showing it's just all the same. Einstein showed us that matter and energy are not two separate things, but one and the same. And then Einstein showed us that acceleration and gravitation or really the same thing once you realize that things can be curved and, and so on. So as a physicist, you know, I think of myself as just food rearranged. Or more specifically, a bunch of quarks and electrons arranged in a particular pattern. And, and if, if you would bring in some old Cartesian argument that the, my consciousness or elan vital or soul or whatever is different from the quarks, well, then either it's having, if you could, I would just imagine, future technology measuring what all my quarks are doing. Either I would find that they exactly obey the laws of physics, in which case this soul isn't having any effect anyway, and then I'm not interested in talking about it. Or it is pushing my particles around in some way, but then that just brings it into the realm of physics. There's no dualism. We could study it just like we study other new forces and particles, like the Higgs boson. So, so that's the part where I'm not bothered by there being any kind of gap and quite confident that we are our quarks. On the other hand, I am, I think, more mystified than you are, Michael, even though I very much respect your perspective, by why it actually feels like something. To me, of course, you, maybe you can calculate why my quarks claim they have a subjective experience, but I also subjectively know that I have this ex subjective experience, and I know that even more directly than I know that I'm made of quarks. And I, I would love to know what particular principle it is that the motion of my quarks has to satisfy, you know, for there to be that subjective experience. I think you had a, a nice formalism when, when we last talked about this. We can't understand something unless we can build it. So what's, maybe I can flip that on its head, though. In the course of building something, we come to understand it better. So in the course of your own work and, and, and projecting that work into the future, and actually, as you actually build robots that have a limited degree of maybe self-awareness, you would want to call it. Do, do you develop new conceptual categories that may kind of break this, this old dualism? Yeah, I think you know, what we've learned is that consciousness, maybe this is the tripping point, that consciousness is not a black and white thing. We tend to talk about, is something conscious or is it not? Are we conscious, are we not? You know, as, is, you know, it's sort of a black and white thing, but, but the sort of practical notion that you learn very quickly with, with robots is that if you look at, at, machine, at the ability to self-simulate as a, as a sort of working definition of consciousness, you have all the you know continuum of, of consciousness levels uh, that go all the way from something trivial like a robot that simulates itself, which um, is sort of a very low-level trivial kind of consciousness, all the way to to humans and maybe beyond, to things that are super the the their ability to simulate themselves is is so vast and so broad that this, it appears to be as if there's a gap. But I really think that if you take it down a couple of notches, it becomes, a, uh, you know, this duality vanishes. And, and it's a little bit, to your question about quarks, you know, if you try to understand the uncertainty principle about your position, if you do it at, a, at, at, at your scale, you know, it's very complicated. But if you do it at a small scale, it, it becomes pretty simple. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a, the root cause. We just have, we, we're trying to bite off too much trying to explain human consciousness right away. We know, though, that if you just take any random collection of quarks that are gluons or what have you, it 
generically actually won't, won't be conscious. So there's a certain organization that has to inhere in, in that collection of particles. Right, so it's not just, it's, it's the ability to self-simulate. So you have to have the ability for the machine to, to make uh, predictions about its own state in the future. And to the degree that it can simulate itself accurately, that's the degree to which it's self-aware. And uh, again, some systems can't. Some s systems can do it in a very rudimentary way. They can maybe predict where their, where their limbs are gonna go next. And uh, some can think about how it's gonna feel to walk on the beach uh, two years from now, and that's very sophisticated. Now, a number of you have already brought up information, and Max, you actually included that explicitly in your, in your 140 character or 300 character, whatever it actually turned out to be, uh, description at the very beginning. So let's turn now to the role of information in some of our ideas about consciousness. Uh, they seem to be, information seems to come up a lot in discussions of consciousness today. And I'm wondering, David, if you could give us kind of a, a capsule history of, of how information theory is kind of implicated in, in this. Yeah, well, people think often our best theories of the mind go with our best latest technology. So at one point, you know, the model of the mind is a steam engine or is a telephone exchange. But, you know, these days we're in the information age. So it's very natural to understand, <laughs> to try to understand consciousness in terms of information. But I think, you know, there's more to it than that. Um, consciousness seems to have an informational structure, a kind of a bit-by-bit -bit structure. If I look at, say, the character of my visual field right now involves a whole bunch of colors at locations. Colors have an informational structure. They're qualities in a three-dimensional quality space from red to green and from blue to yellow and brightness and, and so on, all laid out. It's a little bit, you know, naively, it's a bit like the pixels on a computer screen, which we can model in terms of bits, in terms of information. So it's very natural to try to model a state of consciousness as a state, a complex state of information. And at the same time, you can look at the structure of the brain and you can find corresponding states of information in the brain, maybe neur neurons coding colors in a three-dimensional space in a corresponding way. And that makes for at least a very tight correlation between informational structure in the brain and the informational structure we find in consciousness. I don't think it removes the mystery of why does all that information processing in the brain give you consciousness in the first place, but it begins to suggest that if you're going to try and find some very tight connection between the two. Maybe information provides the tools to do that. So I speculated about 20 years ago in a book I wrote on consciousness that maybe, you know, some kind of theory that information has two fundamentally different aspects connecting the brain and consciousness might be the best, might be at least one way to uh, articulate a theory. And more recently, um, there's been a whole bunch of neuroscientists and uh, computer scientists and others who've been really developing mathematical theories of information and the connection to consciousness here. And that segues nicely into, Max, I wanted to ask you, because you've um, worked on and are friends with Giulio Tononi and his idea of integrated information theory. And I'm wondering if you could give us kind of a summary of what that theory tells us. Yeah, first of all, the, way I was so, the reason I was so excited when I first learned about integrated information theory is it was the first time I actually saw someone write down an equation which this information processing was supposed to satisfy to have this magic um, subjective quality, which means maybe we can test it and things like this. Um, so um, I spent a large fraction of last year doing a bunch of math, trying to make a taxonomy of all possible equations you could write down that would quantify principles that the information processing should satisfy to be conscious. And 
one can argue about what sort of principles there should be, but I think one pretty clear no-brainer is that a system to be conscious should be able to store some information for at least a short time, at least. Or, uh, a glass of water or something isn't very good at keeping information for a long time, but a hard disk is, for example. Uh, you probably also wanted to have, be able to process the information and do something more interesting than just sit there. Uh, Giulio Tononi added an additional principle, which I think is very deep. So the idea is very simple. If you have a system, a clock or whatever, which contains some information, the laws of physics tell you something about how that's going to evolve and change into its state at a later time. And there's some mechanism for how this happens. We teach this in physics class. Now, Julio said that since your consciousness feels like a unified whole, you don't feel like two separate people who can't communicate with one another, that must mean that the information processing also must be connected and integrated, as he put it. And mathematically, what that means is simply that you cannot take a scissors and cut the system into two parts that don't communicate, because then what you have is simply two separate things that don't actually talk to each other. And you see this even in neurosurgery. Some people have to have a corpus callostomy where they pretty much sever the communication between the left and right brain half. And when that happens, you see these very strange behaviors in the patient sometimes where they say something, and then the other hand, which is controlled by the other brain half, comes and tries to stop what the other one is doing. It's almost like they're two separate minds in there. And uh, so that gives us, again, <clears throat> something we can go and test in the lab and see if this kind of integration is actually responsible for, for consciousness. We'll come back to this more in the, in the experiment segment you wanted to mention. I just want to add one last thing here, which is, so we don't just sound like a mutual admiration society that are all agreeing with each other and liven it up a little bit. I think there's a very interesting difference in perspective, actually, between the two of us and the two of you, which is worth just bringing up in the open a bit more. I think, think the, the main difference is you guys are very focused on behavior as opposed to experience. And um, I feel I can be conscious, even if I'm not behaving at all, if I'm just lying on a sofa with my eyes closed, I can even dream and, and experience things. You're so, simulating yourself. <laughs> well, but it, suppose I have a, suppose I have a, and one day, you know, you have a supercomputer, you can predict exactly what I'm going to say in response to all questions, and you, 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 you calculate that whenever you ask me if I experience the color red and the feeling of joy, I say, yes, yes, you know. <laughs> that still doesn't satisfactorily explain why it feels like anything when I'm not behaving at all. And whereas I think we are very interested in not just the behavior, but why it feels like something to behave. Yeah, well, and the, in terms of the dichotomy that, uh, that George was mentioning, behavior is one of the easy problems. It's like explaining how it is that we produce all this self-aware maneuvers and why it is that we say all these things, whereas the hard problem is why does it feel like something? No, but I, I disagree. Inside. I think that, that when, if you have a robot that simulates itself, it is feeling it. Mm. That's, that, that's, yes. You what, think this guy feels pain when I well, put I mean, it feels, if it, if it can predict uh, that, that uh, whatever you're doing it, it, to it is going to uh, you know, prohibit it from achieving its goal, then it is a sort of pain, yeah. Okay, so you think I should be very careful how I treat it? because No, it's up to you. It's up to you. But I think, I think the, the notion of feelings is exactly aligned with self-simulation. It's not a contradiction at all. And, uh, and now it, may, it doesn't prove that it's the same thing, but I don't think it's a contradiction. So, Mike, I mean, yeah. one thing you talked about in your book on this, on this very topic was 
kind of getting into this question of behavior. So you had that kind of arrow of a, how did it go A to B and B to A? Well, can, you, yeah. can you map that out and defend yourself against this charge? <laughs> well, let, let me try, let me start with an, an analogy that I sometimes use. I had a, this is a true story. I had a friend, he was a, a, a therapist and he had a patient who was um, delusional, psychotic patient, uh, and he had a strange delusion. You find these strange delusions, but this one was really weird. The guy thought he had a squirrel in his head instead of a brain. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't, as, as typical in these patients, you couldn't argue him out of it. And you could say, well, look, it's not that you actually have a squirrel. It's that your brain has computed information and has a computed level of certainty. And it's a self-description that's not very accurate. And you could go on like that. And the guy would say, yeah, I mean, you're talking about all this kind of blah, blah, blah information. But it, your, your explanation stinks, because it doesn't explain how the squirrel got in my head. <laughs> And there was no way to convince him. He knew it. It was something that he knew in a primary, absolute sense. He had a squirrel in his head. And this is because there's cognitive machinery that had access to some kind of deeper information computed in the system. And that deeper information, in this case, was false information. But his system is stuck with the information it has. Uh, and so when you ask, how is it that I am absolutely certain that I have an inner feeling? Where does the inner feeling come from? My answer would be, we say that because, not just because we self-simulate, but because the simulation contains the information. There's a me that has a feeling. And you need that. If there's nothing in there computing the information that says there's a me that has a feeling, then we wouldn't be able to articulate that thought. We wouldn't be able to have the cognitive access to that thought. So something deep in there, deep beneath the level of uh, high order cognition, deep beneath the level of language, something in there is computing a particular kind of self-simulation, a particular kind that supplies us with that particular kind of information. That, that would be my take on it. So just to be clear, inner feelings are like the squirrel. We don't really have them. There's well, no such thing. <laughs> you could say the squirrel is a very bad internal model of your brain, right? That uh -huh. you do have something, but you had a really lousy internal model of it. And the work we're doing uh, basically postulates that it's not that there's nothing there. We actually do have something there. We have deep processing of information. But the way the brain models that or simulates or describes that to itself is a little bit cartoonish, a little bit garbled, and it comes out. We describe it as having an inner feeling. So the, the feelingness isn't there, but there's something there that is described in a useful way by that self-description. So an inner something, but not an inner feeling, because there's no feelingness. Yeah. We claim, right? we, we, yes, we, we arrive at this inevitable conclusion that we have the inner feeling. So none of us actually have feelings. OK. That's the approach. Sounds like a squirrely argument. Well. <laughs> I th I th you know, we see this with the, with the robots, again, to the degree that, that uh, self-simulation is consciousness. But we can see uh, uh, different robots have different kinds of models of themselves. Some of them are, are more accurate than others. Uh, some of them are completely wrong. Very, more frequently, I mean, they're never exactly right, let's put it that way. Some, uh, some robots will imagine themselves to be, uh, you know, like anything else in academia, uh, twice as more capable than they really are. <laughs> I have a very uh, large and inflated self-image. 
And some robots have a diminished self-image. Some, some robots will imagine they have five legs. Some will have shorter legs and so forth. So uh, nevertheless, the, some of these models allow them to, even though they're wrong, do allow these robots to make the right kind of decisions uh, in terms of you know, how to move forward. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this idea that our self-image is accurate is completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the question is to what degree, you know, how wrong is it? Uh, it could be a squirrel, which is very wrong. It could be uh, the, this thought that we have unique feelings that is totally also, uh, you know, could be wrong, could be uh, inaccurate. Uh, and it's completely, uh, you know, there's, again, there's a whole scale called continuum of, of different uh, types of self-models. I mean, I like this approach in a way. It's, I mean, in a way you can see a simpler case of this with a phenomenon that's become quite familiar. Each of us model ourselves as having a very rich visual field full of information. It's like a painted picture, picture throughout. <clears throat> Whereas it seems, in fact, uh, science seems to suggest that, in fact, we're only conscious of a very small amount of detail at a given time and the focus of our attention. And it's at best very sketchy outside it. So that's a case where we seem to have a false self-model. So what I see these guys are doing, in particular Mike is, is doing, is taking that kind of approach and saying we're getting it our, our conscious experience a little bit wrong and extending it, we're actually getting it a lot wrong. We're inventing the whole visual field, as it were, the whole feeling field yeah. out, of, uh, out of nowhere. And I, I, like, I think we need crazy ideas to understand consciousness, and this is one of them. Crazy ideas. Yeah. <laughs> but Mike, actually, before, yeah. you, just, just give us the 101 uh, on, on your theory. What does your theory actually say? What is it telling us of what consciousness so, is? If we go around claiming to have an inner feeling, um, of an inner experience of X, whatever X is. And if this is a model, if this is a slightly cartoonish model, what is it a model of? What useful part of the machine? We know from engineering, machines build internal models in order to help control whatever they need to control. And so in a nutshell, the theory is there's a process, neuroscientists call it attention. And I really don't like the word attention because it has so many colloquial definitions. I think a better way to put it is deep processing. The brain has deep processing of information, and that deep processing can move around from one item to another constantly. And uh, we also contain a kind of cartoonish description in our, constructed in our cortex of what it means to have deep processing of information. And that cartoonish description, I call it an attention schema. That's why it's called the attention schema theory. It's a schematic description of this deep processing. And the description basically goes like this. I have something in me. It's not a, quite a physical object. It's more metaphysical. It's something in me that has mental possession of things. And when it does, the consequence is that I can react, and I can remember and choose to re react later. Uh, and th this is. Um, the, so what we call consciousness is a cartoonish description of this selective deep processing of information. So my attention is drawn to that spider, and then my brain tells a story. Oh, my attention was just drawn to that spider. But instead of attention, of course, I mean, what, what is attention? It's this incredibly complicated mechanistic thing with neurons and signals, right? I mean, we don't know anything about that. It's not like I say, oh, my neurons just competed with each other and the spider popped up. No, the, the, what we do is provide ourselves with a, a broad cartoonish description of that, which says, oh, I have a non-physical mental possession experience of the spider. That's a simplified cartoonish model of the underlying processing reality.
Why does the brain bother building in all that extra stuff, like oh. the, the non-physical, mental thing right. being, thing well, as opposed to saying what's correct, which is, I'm attending to this. Uh, because attention... That'd be a lot simpler. Right, well, because attention is an, is an incredibly complicated physical process, right? And the brain has no need to know about neurons and synapses and what's competing with what, right? So all the detail is, is left off, and all that's left is... Uh, without the, w without any modeling of the physical underpinning. But to do that, you could just kind of coarse grain it and ignore a lot of detail. What you're saying the brain does is invent a whole lot of extra stuff that's it's, going it's on, a very, like it's all a, this weird extra illusory yeah, nonsense. It's a, very, it's a very quirky internal model. So mm -hmm. I'll give you another example of a quirky internal model that um, I sometimes use to make this point. Before Newton, people didn't understand what white was, right? people thought white was pure luminance without any brightness. And indeed, the, the hard problem of color <laughs> was how do you scrub light clean and get the contaminants out of it? Newton right? talked exactly this way, by the way. He said, you know, understanding the process of which, which color affects the mind and so on right. is not so easy. Right. And <laughs> so why, why did people think that? Uh, because the visual system constructs a model. And that model is cartoonish. It's physically incoherent but it's good enough for survival. And the model is, no, this is something that's scrubbed clean of all color, right? That's, that's the model that's constructed. Anyway, that, that's the thumbnail sketch. Great. So shading into the third chapter of our discussion, namely, um, how can we gain some empirical access into this? Max, let me, let me ask you, you had nicely said at the beginning that consciousness in that one approach is what information feels like how did, how did you put that, actually, when information feels like to be When processed? it's being processed in certain complex ways, yeah. Which may very well involve self-simulation and so on, mm -hmm. yeah. Is that, I mean, how do you test such a claim? Does it define consciousness by fiat, or does it actually have make falsifiable predictions? It's a, it's a wonderful question, because clearly the borderline between science and metaphysics and philosophy usually is whether you can test it or not. And I think for thousands of years, we were really not able to test this at all. And then people got kind of used to this and said, oh, don't talk about the C word. You won't get tenure. It's just philosophy. No offense. Uh, but that's really changed. You can get tenure for consciousness just and philosophy. Here. <laughs> and I think it's changed for two reasons. One is the rise of artificial intelligence, where more and more of what used to be dismissed as very mysterious, we can now replicate in the labs. And you guys are doing beautiful work on this. And the other is, is the amazing process, progress in neuroscience. So, this is one of the things we're doing a lot in my group right now. You, could, you know, if I put you in our MIT magnetoencephalography machine with six, 306 superconducting magnets, it won't hurt, don't worry, it's non-invasive. <laughs> I can tell you with about 90% accuracy which of a whole bunch of different things you're thinking about. So if you just do a thought experiment where every time you think about an apple, it appears on a computer monitor, and when you think about a train, oh, there's a train, you know. Now, you actually can no longer dismiss this, this science by saying, oh, there's only one kind of access to your mind, namely your subjective access. There's actually two, because you can also have the computer looking at it, and you can start comparing two things. And that's where you can start testing on all of these things and start asking, okay, of all the information processing that the computer sees occurring in your brain, which of those things are you actually reporting that you're subjectively aware of? And you can do the experiment on yourself and say, okay, I knew I've this heartbeat regulation thing that my brain is doing that the computer can see. And I, I think if we do this well enough and map out clearly enough the distinction between the part of your information processing which, we, which is conscious and which is not, 
at some point, we're going to have a Eureka experience. We're like, yes, it's this equation that this bit process, the information processing has to satisfy. And I think that what you both described very eloquently here is, is this hypothesis that any machine that's sufficiently sophisticated to simulate itself and build an accurate self-model will ha have a subjective experience to just as much an extent as we do. Um, I think it's an optimistic hypothesis, because if th that takes place, then any cool future high-tech things that happen are going to feel like something, too. We're not going to end up in a dead sort of zombie universe, right? But, it, but I, I'm actually more optimistic than just calling it a hypothesis, because I think ultimately it's something we can test by doing these kind of experiments in the lab. And I would love to not just leave it as a hypothesis, but actually test it. We'll come back later and talk about AI, but like Ray Kurzweil, for example, if he were here, would probably talk about how one day he dreams of uploading himself into a machine and being immortal. But think about it. So suppose he uploads himself into this virtual Raybot, right? And it talks like Ray Kurzweil and acts like Ray Kurzweil. And you ask it, are you conscious? And it's like, yes, dude, I see red. And then suppose it turns out that, oops, you know, it's just a zombie and it's saying all these things, but it doesn't feel like anything. Wouldn't he be bummed? <laughs> but he wouldn't know to be bummed. <laughs> Touche. But if he, I would rather, I think he would prefer finding out if there is some math or experiments we can do first to see. see I, I'm more optimistic than I think maybe there in, in, than optimistic. you are, and that we can actually test these things. And yeah. it's, it's relevant not just for AI and, and future machines, whether, whether they have feelings and whether you should feel guilty about turning them off. But also, if you're an emergency room doctor and you get an unresponsive patient coming in, not moving, not saying anything, wouldn't you like to know if, if they're having a subjective experience? And I think one day we're going to look back be like, oh, those guys in 2016 were so clueless. They didn't even have the consciousness detector in the ER. What a bunch of losers. So, so Max, I can see. But on my, on my website, I've got a picture of a, uh, of a consciousness meter. I constructed it with neuromorphic engineering and quantum gravity and transpersonal psychology. Really? <laughs> it, looks, it looks a lot like a hairdryer, but you shouldn't let that fool you. <laughs> so but Max, let me just push a little bit, because suppose I, go, I can go into the lab and have the superconducting magnets, God forbid, put on my head. And you can see I'm looking at Apple or, or whatever. But how is that able to distinguish different theories of consciousness? How can that distinguish Tononi's theory from, from Mike's theory from global workspace theory or any other theory? Well, Tononi's theory makes a very specific prediction about which of the information processes that the computer can see are going to be conscious. So if it predicts, oh, there's this thing you're supposed to be aware of, and you're like, the computer tells you that, and you're like, I'm not aware of that, then it's falsified. So what if it's a, something that can't talk, a cat? How do, you, how do you use it to know if a cat is conscious? Or it only works for humans? Unfortunately, what I'm saying is only an experiment you can do on yourself at this point. I would love to have ideas for involving our feline friends in this. But <laughs> hey, we, yourself is a good start, no? <laughs> I mean, there is this problem that we don't have direct access to consciousness in any, any case except for ourselves. We know about our own consciousness, arguably. How do I know about your consciousness? Well, only kind of indirectly. You can tell me. Uh, maybe I infer that since you're like me, you're conscious. But most of our access to consciousness is through people's verbal reports, what they say. And so we're limited to using verbal report yeah. for, uh, for the tests that we have. But unfortunately, it's limited. Except but, if you do it on yourself, then you don't even need to do any report. You yeah. just sit there and click, and you can compare. Really, but very you, you, first hand. Like. You can only be certain at the very moment of having the experience, like uh, 
like an hour later, you'll remember, oh yeah, well I was conscious then of that, but can you be sure that you really were? Yeah, but this, this, That's just memory. But that, again, if I applied the consciousness detector to this robot and it says, aha, it is conscious. Some of us will say, ah, oh, that just vindicates that I thought the robot was conscious. The other half of the people say, I never thought robots were conscious. Your detector is not working properly. So there seems to be circularity in these kinds of uh, experimental tests, or maybe I'm missing something. I think if, I, if you sit there one hour later and you refute, you remember refuting Tononi's theory with um, 10 successive trials, you know, next time you get to referee one of his papers, you know, <laughs> you'll take that into account. And I think. Uh, I, th I think we have a tendency to this subjective experience as somehow being less reliable evidence than what we measure with volts and amps and, and detectors. But that's kind of ridiculous, of course, since that's the most primary evidence we ever have from anything else. And even the whole, as I said in the beginning, even the whole existence of volts and quarks in the outside world is something we've ultimately inferred from the subjective experiences. So I think certainly. If, there's, if you have an equation, I can test it, it doesn't work. <clears throat> That's as solid a scientific refutation of a theory as, as it comes. So Mike, do you think that yeah. you can use these neuroimaging or, or mm -hmm. other experiments to falsify a theory? Well, we, uh, we, we think we can falsify our theory. <laughs> and we're trying very hard. We like to beat on it and see what happens. But you know, if we're right, Consciousness is a particular kind of self-model. And I'm a very engineering kind of guy. I mean, I see it from an engineering perspective. And, uh, and machines have self-models for a very specific purpose in order to help control the thing that's being modeled. I mean, there's an analogy with control of your, your arm. Your brain has an internal model of your arm, which is also not terribly accurate, uh, but is good enough to help move your arm. And there are moments when that internal model blinks out. It just um, fades out. The, the, and, and your arm has characteristic errors in control as a result. I mean, you, you can show this with a robot. Engineers show this with a robot. The, a good robot needs an internal simulation of its mm -hmm. arm. And when the simulation disappears, the control of the arm loses certain key attributes. And so now we have a very simple hypothesis. If it's if there are situations where you're not actually conscious of something, then your deep processing or your attention on that something should lose control in specific ways. And we can test that. Because you can put people in, in experiments where they're not aware, you know, a big bright visual stimulus appears, but you've masked it in some clever way so they're not aware of it. Amazingly, they're still paying attention to it. You can show that behaviorally. They're paying attention to a thing that they're not aware of. And now we can ask, what happens to attention? What happens to their deep processing of that stimulus? Does, does it wobble in the predicted ways if you take out the simulation? And this is exactly the kind of tests we're doing. And you know, thus far, the theory has, let, let me put it this way, the, the, the theory has failed to be falsified. <laughs> OK, I think I got the meta on that. Actually, actually I, I, let me move on to our last topic, because I was going to go to you anyway. And, and segueing off what he was saying about the body schema. And could you show us the body schema? Exactly. So I thought uh, I'd show you what, uh, how this robot, or actually not this robot, but an ancestor of this robot, uh, how it modeled itself. And again, this is a very simple robot. It's not going to wake up and say hello. It's just a. Uh, uh, creating a very simple cartoonish model of itself, and it takes it about four days to do so, so a lot faster than a baby. So but it, it taught itself. It taught, so again, this is not a human programming 
the simulation into the robot as is traditionally done in, uh, in robotics. Uh, nor is it building this uh, simulation by it, it's sort of, it's not, it's not learning to walk, let's say, by doing lots of trial and error. It's actually flailing around and gradually creating a self-image that is consistent with its experiences. So I think we have a video of that. Can we let's let's run, see that happen. Dr. Lipson shows a video of an X-shaped robot sitting on a table. Basically a rectangular bundle of wires and batteries with four long legs that extend in each direction from the body, sort of like elongated triangles, each one jointed in three places to allow it to bend. The robot begins to flex its legs, almost like fingers opening and closing, and then we see animation of what's going on in its processor. The self-images it's trying and rejecting as it tries to figure itself out, how many legs it has and how they're capable of moving. So this is maybe the first, uh, the beginning, been creating a, a bunch of self-images that are totally wrong. They're very <laughs> cartoonish. Uh, they're totally wrong. It has no idea, no clue what it is. As the experiment continues, the robot's self-image gradually changes and gets a little closer to correct. Uh, this is about two days into the process. This is one of its physical actions, and here it is beginning to realize it has four legs. doesn't quite know where the pieces are connected and, and how, but, but it's beginning to realize uh, what, it's, what it is. And this is uh, four days into the process. It pretty much figured out that it has four legs, and the, the position where it's connected aren't exactly right, but it's, it's pretty close. Then he uses that self-image to figure out how to move forward. And then we see the little robot start to move itself across the table. It sort of flails its front leg forward, lifts itself up a little, and then makes a sort of body wave, scooching forward and scraping its central section across the table in the process. And frankly, we were hoping to get an evil spidery walk, but instead, we got this lame way of moving forward. <laughs> but again, when you look at this, you have to remember this, this robot did not do trials of walking before, nor was it programmed by an engineer. It just did these brief interactions with the world, and then it came up with a self-image that allowed it to move forward. So, you know, the, the movie goes on where we, we do something very cruel. We chop off a leg, and we watch what happened. And you can see that within a day, uh, the robot's also uh, self-image loses a leg also, and it begins to to limp. Uh, and again, to any observer, it looks a very it's a very sad movie, which is why I'm sparing you this uh, this episode. I'm uh, reporting you to people for the ethical treatment of right. robots. I'm sure, but we did put it back again, and the robot is happily retired. So, so from your perspective, just building robots is consciousness useful? So, so this is exactly, so I think there's, there's sort of two reasons why uh, we're trying to do this. One is uh, sort of what we're, this panel is. It's just a, an, it's an amazing, uh, uh, deep question. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of the six or is it seven lectures that you have? It's one of the seven big questions of life. And uh, it's, uh, it's on there, it's up there with uh, origin of life and so forth. So it's a very deep thing. And so this is, this is one reason why we're exploring this. But the second thing is sort of practical. And imagine that uh, many systems were able to simulate themselves. And uh, uh, what we see is that they can, they're much more resilient. They can act. They can learn faster. They can recover from damage. They can anticipate things before they happen. They can do a lot of, uh, 
a lot of good things. And if you look at uh, humans, you'll see a lot of capabilities that, that, that animals with lower levels of consciousness are not able to do. So no doubt it's a useful thing for a machine to have. And in our attempt to make you know, better, more resilient, more capable systems, uh, it's definitely, I think, at the top of the list of, of a capability we want to know how to build in into systems. And again, with this view that it's a continuum, we don't have to make our bridge, you know, cry at night because it's cold. We can make it a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, we can make it practical. We can engineer it to be useful or less useful in, in the way we, we want it. David, do you think intelligent machines, as they become more intelligent with time, will be conscious? Is that a necessary property or maybe necessary strong word, but an important property? Of course, a lot. Depends on what you mean by intelligence, as well as by what you mean by consciousness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm, inc I'm inclined to think that, uh, yeah, as artificially intelligent systems have more and more of the functional and behavioral properties that human beings have, it's more and more likely that they'll be uh, they'll be conscious. I mean, in the extreme case, you could have a an AI system that was functionally identical to a human brain, maybe simulating silicon chips set up to simulate neurons inside a. Uh, a human brain, so it's a complete functional isomorph and a behavioral isomorph. I think there's pretty good reason to think that that would be conscious. One reason is that you could probably get there from us by gradually replacing our neurons one at a time with these silicon chips. And if functioning and behavior stay the same throughout, I think there's a pretty good case that consciousness uh, will too. Of course, there's a question about how many of our capacities and capabilities you can get rid of and still have consciousness. And nobody knows you know, where that would stop and where that would would give out. But I think the point where I would become convinced that an AI system was conscious, if, it, you know, if, this, if this system grew up and started talking to us and then started expressing to us puzzlement about the mystery of, uh, mm. of consciousness. Like, oh, I know I'm just a collection of silicon circuits, but I just have all this inner experience that I can't quite figure out. That would, that would be enough to convince me. So when your university hiring committee gets an application from a robot, you'll know the robots have, have, have come. Uh, it could just be a smart, unconscious algorithm. Maybe. <laughs> so we have just a couple minutes, and I just had to get this question out because otherwise I know you'll ask it in Q&A. Max, should we be worried? Are we, are we dooming ourselves by building these systems? So this is, again, George specializes in double questions. So first, th Sorry, there's a the question of whether we should worry or not, which I would argue has absolutely nothing to do with whether machines are conscious. You know, if you get worried about future machines treating you badly, you don't really care if that heat-seeking missile coming after you is having an inner experience or not. <laughs> you just care about its behavior, right? So that I think we can tackle strictly on engineering terms. And, and that's great, I think, that this discussion is happening more widely now. It should. I'm optimistic that we can create a great future with artificial intelligence enhancing our usual human intelligence if we put a lot of thought into planning. How, but I think it's not one of those things that's just going to happen automatically any more than it's going to end well if you drive down the highway with your eyes closed. <laughs> so so that's, that, that's the worry or not. I, I'm optimistic if we plan ahead, and I think we should put more research into planning ahead. And in terms of whether the machines are conscious, even though it doesn't matter from the point of view of whether you should worry about them, I think it matters fundamentally from an ethical point of view. You were joking in the beginning that long ago a bunch of white males decided that only white males are conscious and have souls, and women don't, and minorities don't, so it's okay to have slaves and so on. Well, here we are now building these more. Now, if you feel we're so progressive and we agree that all of us in this room 
are conscious, right? Uh, but maybe not those machines that aren't built, that don't have a, a circulatory system and aren't made of, of meat and so on. But as they get more and more sophisticated, and we start treating them as slaves, should we maybe once again ask if we're being the same kind of hypocrites that those white males were in the past? If, if they can write beautiful poetry and... Uh, hey, we have and, a machine on the panel. Yeah. <laughs> Are you conscious? No, just because it doesn't say anything, we assume it's... Um, <clears throat> so so I, I think it's an interesting question for us to ask, ultimately, if, if we create these, these wonderful machines, whether we should treat them also, in some level, as, as having ethical rights. Because as a physicist, I don't think there is any fundamental difference between the machine's quarks and my quarks. It's the same kind of quarks, just put together in a different way. And so it, maybe the ultimate ethics should be based not on whether you're made of carbon, but on what, on what kind of subjective experiences you have. And maybe we want to create a universe with a lot of awesome, positive subjective experiences and not a lot of awful painful ones. So Michael, as we gain more and more experiences in our society yeah. with more and more advanced systems, do you think that we'll start to naturally, actually maybe we already well, are, think of them as conscious? Yeah, let, let, me, let me say this. A conscious computer is a computer that can potentially attribute consciousness to us. And therefore, it's a computer that is less likely to go around killing us all. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a crucial part of human nature that we attribute consciousness to others. We have it almost reflexively and it makes us uh, interact better socially. It's the anchor of our social capabilities and it's a good thing to build into computers, not a bad thing. Because it'll have empathy. Yeah, one, one it's the basis of empathy. Without it, you can't have empathy. So will they be more ethical than humans? I don't know. Let's hope so. Perhaps. But you know, I, I think that we tend to think about will computers ever be as, as consciousness as humans, but there's no reason to stop at human right. level. I mean, right. if, if, if it's a, a self-simulation, it can go very deep, it can go very far, where the machines will be pondering whether humans are conscious and, and, and they will be writing poetry that we can't understand even. So I think, uh, I think there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing unique about human consciousness that's somehow the maximum. We've been making those kinds of mistakes for a long time. And, that Let's not do have. that again. Oh, yeah. It may well be then the ultimate moral calculus. You know, we've, maybe ants, we figure ants ca counting a tiny bit and humans counting a whole lot to the moral calculus. Well, once machines are vastly more intelligent than humans, maybe we're going to count about as much as ants in the whole, uh, in the whole moral calculus. Oh, um, entirely unless we ourselves become the machines and you know, upload ourselves and... Then if, if the degree of moral concern goes to the degree of consciousness and the degree of intelligence, then maybe we'd better uh, get, into the, uh, get into the whole intelligence enhancement business ourselves. And then but then you probably want to make sure you upload yourself into something which has subjective experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be very, very important. We've got to understand the consciousness <laughs> question first. I think it's time to open it up to, to questions. The first question was asking for more information about pets. If we can use some of the high-tech monitoring they described earlier to pinpoint certain kinds of thoughts to particular parts of the brain, could we use the same tech to prove the high-level consciousness of things like cats? Well, so you're right that one can do this on cats, and there are a lot of nice experiments on cats and monkeys and mice and other animals where you indeed see a lot of remarkable similarities which sort of pop the bubble a little bit for human chauvinism. The visual system of a cat is remarkably similar to the human one, and, and you, we can feel pretty confident when we know the cat is seeing red or seeing a mouse. But of, but of course, 
if you want to be a skeptic, you still can't, the cat's, <coughs> you still can't ask the cat if, what it felt. And the cat, well, I don't know if the cat understands the experimental setup well, well enough to convince itself either of this. So I think we're in a little bit of a pickle. But I'm, my guess certainly would be that, that all your beloved pets are, are plenty conscious as well, as, which I'm, I'm, I suspect very strongly your intuition told you for many years anyway. I think there are experiments, at least on dogs, not only do dogs have these self-models, dogs have models of other dogs. To the extent that we can project consciousness onto the cat, which is why we're, or dog, which is why we're so certain our pets have consciousness, they're doing the same thing to each other and to us. And it's all part of human and mammalian consciousness is not really just a personal thing. It's also a perceptual phenomenon that we project onto others. So do, what's the kind of lowest, and, and if I can use that word, animal or, or yeah. organism that will actually project? We've do been, paramecia do that? I don't think so. We've been, we've been really deeply thinking about that. And you can go back. And you know this is something that's very gradual. It's going to start very, very tiny. And one thing I can say is really complicated self-models and really deep processing of information begins with the cortex. And many people don't know this. The evolution of the cortex begins with reptiles. Reptiles have this structure in the brain. It's called the wulst. They're the first ones to have that structure. Birds have it. Mammals have it. In mammals, it expanded, and it's called the cortex. And the very origins of this kind of deep self-simulation and attributing some kind of mental states to others may begin in this little thinnest sliver in reptiles and expand, uh, expand from there. That's what we suspect. All, suspicion, all, all, all speculation at this point. And we have robots that look at other robots and attribute uh, intentions to those other robots. It's very interesting to see very quickly how you get things like uh, deception emerge. Uh, so we know we're conscious because we can lie to one another? Well, that's definitely uh, you know, a proof of theory of mind, uh, that once we can uh, do that, we, we, we can exploit that for cooperation, but also for competition, for deception, for all kinds of interesting social behaviors. And then a follow-up question from someone else in the audience. What do we know or suspect about the evolutionary causes for consciousness? Why was it an evolutionarily advantageous thing for us to develop? One source of optimism suggesting that the future machines or organisms that, that act in interesting conscious ways will be conscious, I think, comes from evolution. Because evolution is simp doesn't give a hoot about whether the organisms are conscious or not. It just cares about whether they're successful at reproducing, producing, making future generations. So if it turned out that the consciousness, the subjective experience, were just some sort of luxury that you caused extra energy consumption to be required, it would have been optimized out, presumably, in the, in the process. So that's, that's the reason for hope, maybe, that um, consciousness is, like I, think, like I think you both hope, sort of rather generic. On the other, other hand, maybe it's just an anthropic selection effect, you know, that <laughs> maybe the universe is full of zombies and the only ones actually asking these questions are the few that are conscious. So I would still rather do some experiments to find out which of the two it is. 
But I think there's clearly, and you can argue there's an evolutionary advantage to being self-aware in the sense, if you are, um, if you are to, to animals that are large, uh, expensive to construct, so to speak, have long life term, can't do experiments uh, physically all the time and have to sort of simulate. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, more complex things, you better build in simulation before you build them in reality. And I think that's why, you know, if you're a bacteria, you can get around, you know, without experimentation, without the simulator. But if you're a human or any large animal, it's good to have a simulator built in. Next, someone asked about how this affects our understanding of severe clinical conditions, such as what's called persistent vegetative state, which is a kind of coma where the patient is definitely alive, breathing, heartbeat, and so forth, but there are no outward signs of consciousness. With the vegetative state, people have been actually doing brain scans of people diagnosed with vegetative state and unresponsive, and actually seeing signs that seem to be signs of would normally be regarded as signs of consciousness in the brain. For example, they ask someone to imagine, imagine playing tennis or imagine walking through your house. In a normal conscious person, different areas of the brain get activated then. Some people with vegetative state show that response, suggesting the capacity for consciousness. And indeed, those people normally, some months later, will emerge from the vegetative state. So that's a case where the neuroscience of consciousness is actually helping with the clinical treatment of these phenomena. Really interesting. The next questioner wanted to know how the panelists reconciled this research, looking at consciousness as something purely mechanistic, which can be built and rebuilt and recreated, with their own intuitive sense of self, their belief in their own free will, for instance. Oh, oh I'll take a try. Uh, for me, if consciousness is this kind of self-simulation or self-model, it's there because it helps control the system. So if that's the case, then it has a definite function. It um, helps guide the system. It has a control function. It, uh, so our consciousness has some measure of ability to help produce our decisions and our behavior. And this is very similar to the intuitions people have about consciousness. It's something that helps guide our behavior. So in a, in a, in a way, the, the science as I see it kind of dovetails with the intuitions about, some of the intuitions about consciousness. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of intuitions about consciousness and about other things in the world that are simply plain wrong. I mean, intuitions are really tricky things. They're the rational part of the brain uh, extracting information from these deep evolutionarily built-in models that are not accurate. They're not literally accurate. You know, and part of science is figuring out what the inaccuracies are in our intuitions. Uh, so there, there are, I think, always going to be some gaps between intuition and reality. I certainly agree with you that our self-models tend to be very bad. But if we, read, if we redefine the question from the, the being about the behavioral interpretation of consciousness to being about the subjective experience, definition of it, then I, I think not only is consciousness, the way I understand it, something I can live with and accept, but it's actually something I very much embrace. I think, it's, in fact, I would argue that consciousness is the coolest thing that's happened in the past 13.8 billion years in our universe. You know, if the first, there were just all these 10 to the 78 atoms bouncing around, doing all sorts of stuff, and who cares? There was nobody there to experience it, right? If you ask why is this a beautiful sky evening view here, it's because 
we are consciously experiencing this. If there were no subjective experience in our universe, all of these views, all of those galaxies, they would be beautiful. They would just be a giant waste of space as far as I'm concerned. So I, I view it, the history of our universe basically as a lot of very boring times. And then our universe woke up became this these amazing this amazing subjective experience occurred and I, I think it's a, not something I struggle with and feel tormented by I love it I think it's such an incredibly beautiful idea that's beautiful a follow-up question what about free will what's the relationship between consciousness and free will I think free will is actually a much easier thing to dispense with than consciousness I think that um, the reason it feels to us like we have free will, even though we're just a bunch of quarks obeying the standard model of particle physics, is simply because we cannot predict what we're going to have for lunch. We cannot pre predict what we're going to say one second from now in less than one second. And that's just the basic fact of, of computational complexity you can actually prove. that Most computations, the only way to find out what they're going to lead to is to actually do them. And what we call consciousness maybe is how it feels to do it. Uh, I so I this I would just I put down to what you said, this poor self-modeling, you know, basically, that we think there's some sort of magic, and that's why we, we call it free will. I think I, disagree. I think I disagree about this, actually. I can predict oh, cool. perfectly well what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. I'm going to have <laughs> fish for lunch, and I'm going to have steak for dinner. Nonetheless, when I have that fish for lunch, I'm going to be doing so freely. It's going to be a free choice. So I don't think free will is a matter of predictability. It's a matter of being able to do what you want. But I think it's indistinguishable from random behavior, from randomness. I mean, the devil can't predict whether you're going to have super... Uh, you know, super salad, uh, maybe because it's, you're behaving in a random way or because it's, uh, you know, there's uh, chaos in there and, and that's it. It doesn't have to be free will to be unpredictable. The next question came from a man who was uncomfortable with some of the basic premises put forth by the panel. First, with the idea of consciousness being defined as self-simulation. He asks, with all the variety of conscious experience, from self-awareness to reacting to external stimuli and so forth, how can that be the only measure? And second, the focus on the cerebral cortex as the home of consciousness. He points to cases of people being born without a cerebral cortex. They aren't very smart, perhaps, but they are awake and conscious. Are we focusing on the cortex because humans have a larger cortex than other animals, so we therefore want it to be the seat of our identities? Does it all roll into us being uncomfortable with the idea of simpler animals or even machines being conscious in the same way that we are? Would anyone also agree with, with the gentleman that you don't... Well, it sounds like you, that, that you agree with, with, with this idea that there's gradations of self-awareness uh, all the way from, from, from very simple machines to, to different, even within humans, different levels of self-awareness. But and, if the thermostat is just a single bit of information, it can't really model... Itself. That's right. So, so it, it, it is probably not self-aware, uh, and it's a very trivial, you know, to, it depends on which, self, which thermostat you have, but, but it's, a, it, it's no doubt trivial uh, and almost not there. I think it's, very, it's actually very important to distinguish self-awareness, which we've been talking about a lot, from simply awareness or consciousness from self-consciousness. As, as I see it, self-consciousness is one aspect of consciousness, when one's consciousness of oneself, conscious of what oneself and what's going on in one's mind. But an awful lot of consciousness is just consciousness of the world. If I'm consciousness of that red exit sign 
over there or of something going on um, in the sound in the environment. That needn't be particularly self-consciousness. That's consciousness of the world. And that, to me, already raises many of the mysteries of consciousness. And maybe the self-consciousness is a relatively rare phenomenon, only hmm. creatures with quite considerable cognitive capacities, whereas it may be that consciousness you know, of the world extends to much, much simpler organisms. Next, is consciousness fundamentally a matter of massive connectivity? If enough artificial electrical neuroconnections are made, such as in a massive supercomputer, will consciousness eventually emerge? No. And the reason I'm saying that is too much connectivity is also a bad thing for consciousness. We know that if you're having an epileptic seizure, for example, the problem isn't too little connectivity, it's too much. Where you have large fractions of the, all the neurons in your brain are firing in sync. <coughs> so um, it's more, more subtle than that, I think. But I think, I think the, the, it is a necessary condition in the sense that in order to simulate very complex things, you have to have a lot of uh, modeling capacity. And that would inevitably require a lot of connections. Now, it doesn't mean that a lot of connections guarantee the ability to simulate, but uh, the more, but definitely uh, capacity to simulate uh, a very sophisticated, high-fidelity self-simulation will require a pretty sophisticated machinery. And you know, we're seeing this with a, this deep learning thing that's happening in the last couple of years. For many years, people have been trying to build these these very sophisticated machine learning methods, and it's only took off once we had uh, neural networks that had billions or, or, or many millions of connections. And it was not possible before. Again, it's not, it's not uh, doesn't guarantee it, but it's a necessary um, piece of the puzzle. And last, two questions about the evolutionary nature of human consciousness. First, if consciousness is so advantageous, why does it take so long to develop? Why aren't small infants fully self-conscious? And second, is it possible for someone to be born without consciousness, a human being, that is, perhaps one with extremely severe autism or another psychological condition? Well, at least in robots, we know that self-simulation is very difficult to, to, to program in, and so instead we let the robots learn. And I think that's what's happening also with, with humans. Uh, it's too difficult for evolution to specify all the neural circuitry, uh, circuitry so that you're self-aware as you're born. So instead, there's a learning mechanism. A learning mechanism is a lot easier to specify. And then the machine or the human or the baby learn the self-image over time. And over time, that model gets increasingly more, more sophisticated. And that's, that's, uh, that's at least, from a, again, from a practical point of view, learning is easier than just sort of downloading a, a self-image into the machine. And I think even with the subjective quality of consciousness, it's not so simple that it's either or, either you have it or you don't. There's clearly a spectrum, and we can experience that all tonight as we drift off to sleep and feel that our consciousness sort of gradually fades away and becomes more of a blur and then poof. I think there's increasingly a consensus that newborn babies have some kind of, of consciousness. Maybe it's not complicated self-consciousness, but for example, can they feel pain? I think there's a pretty, pretty good consensus that they do. Do they have visual experience of the world? I mean, William James said that for a baby, consciousness is just a blooming, buzzing confusion, but I think um, there's an increasing consensus that really an awful lot is built in at, uh, at birth. I mean, how far that extends to, for example, preterm 
infants and how far that extends to uh, people with all kinds of um, conditions, I'm, I'm not sure. But I'm in general, I think the, the consensus is more and more to, uh, to extend certain forms of, of consciousness really in a quite widespread way. And it does raise questions about exactly at what point you know, children have different kinds of moral status. And we'll end there. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. It presented a conversation called The Rise of Human Consciousness, held at the Academy on Monday, May 23rd, 2016. The moderator was Dr. George Musser of Scientific American Magazine, and the panelists were Dr. David Chalmers of New York University, Dr. Michael Graziano of Princeton University, Dr. Hod Lipson of Columbia University, and Dr. Max Tegmart of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Find out more about the Physics of Everything series at www.nyas.org slash physicsofeverything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.